This is Madeline Smith, and you are listening to Actually Interesting History. We make history fun, accessible, and interesting by sharing the human story behind the dates we learned about in history class. As Rudyard Kipling said, if history was taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. Now on with the show. Hello, friends. So we are back for our next episode of our coverage of Alexander the Great, arguably the most successful military leader of all time, come, to come out of the West. I'm not as familiar with Eastern, Eastern history, but before we get into it, let's start with a quick review. So Alexander's people were the Macedonians, a kingdom in the northern half of the Greek mainland with a ruling family that had been established around 700 BC. The ancient Macedonians made an effort to Hellenize, which means basically to become Greek themselves, to gain acceptance from the other Greek city-states. For a more detailed overview of the relationship between the ancient Greeks and the ancient Macedonians, I highly suggest going back to the last episode I just published, where I cover this and more with Mario of Mario's History Talks. In 359 BC, Alexander's father, Philip II, came to the throne at the age of 24. Philip modernized the classic Greek hoplite warfare, and with this new fighting style, what was Philip going to do? We left off with Philip II of Macedonia creating an incredibly well-disciplined and modernized fighting force. If you don't remember the changes he made, I'm going to summarize them very quickly right here. Basically, he gave them longer spears. Nice. What's better? Poking someone from further away so they can't poke you. Makes a lot of sense. They decided to incorporate more shapes to his infantry or phalanx. Remember, that's what we call them. So that they could very quickly get into. Again, why no one else had considered this over just a straight line is beyond me. He also took a look around and said, You know what would probably break up the enemy line? Horses. Why don't people use horses more? And again, (laughs) why this thought never occurred to anyone else is beyond me. I do have to say, though, war elephants did exist, but they were incredibly hard to train and they were super unreliable. So horses were definitely a better bet. Philip, uh, (laughs) Philip definitely got it right here. So during the 350s BC, Philip and his army began seizing control of Greece. He gradually gained control of the regions further and further south, pushing him into closer conflict with Athens. Athens was one of the major city-states at this time. They were on the decline, but they still were incredibly powerful. Demosthenes, an Athenian citizen who, if you listen to my episode right before, you know he wasn't a huge fan of the the Macedonians. Uh, He delivered a series of speeches in Athens that urged the Greeks to rise up and unite against Philip. These speeches became known as the Philippics, a term still used to this day to describe a speech that assassinates someone's character. Philip entered a peace agreement with Athens and his army began to work as a police force in Greece, keeping the peace among the various city-states which to me just sounds like a convenient reason to centralize power and put Philip in charge. But hindsight is twenty twenty, and poor Demosthenes probably had a point. Alas, uh, Philip's peace with Athens would not last for long. 
Besides warfare and conquest, Philip II modernized Macedonia. First, he moved his court to Pella, and the tribal leaders from all over Macedonia soon followed. Pella became a magnet for artists and intellectuals who got employment from the royal court. The sons of the Macedonian tribal leaders lived and were educated in Pella. This new generation was highly educated and skilled at war. This group of young men would ultimately follow Alexander to the ends of the known world. It is my belief that there was in those days no nation, no city, no single individual beyond the reach of Alexander's name. Never in all the world was there another like him, and therefore I cannot help but feel that some power more than human was concerned in his birth. Arian, the Campaigns of Alexander. So now that we've talked about dad pretty thoroughly, let's go ahead and circle back and talk about mom. Alexander's mom was named Olympus. At least that's her most commonly used name. She actually had four names that she was known by during her lifetime, but Olympus seems to be the one that stuck and is most commonly used, so let's go ahead and move forward with that. She was the daughter of King Neoptolemus I, who ruled over a tribe of Greeks in the northwestern region of the Greek mainland. It is notable that Olympus's family claimed to be a descendant of Achilles. We haven't talked about Achilles much yet, but Achilles was a hero during the Trojan War. Achilles' mom was a sea nymph that actually had been courted by Zeus and Poseidon, but there had been a prophecy that whoever married her would have a son that would be greater than that of her husband. So obviously Zeus and Poseidon were like, mm, that sounds like that could potentially end the world, so let's not. But I think that that is excellent foreshadowing. I love that that is the, that that is the origin story of Olympus's family. And that for, the foreshadowing is wonderful. Thank you so much for history for setting that one up. So after Olympus's father died, her uncle, the new king, arranged for a marriage for her with Philip to cement a relationship between their kingdom and the Macedonians in 357 BC. Plutarch actually said that Philip had seen Olympia at some religious rites and they were both attending earlier and that, that he had fallen in love with her. However, this marriage also seemed to be super politically convenient, so who knows if Plutarch just made that up or if it was actually true. Plutarch shares a story about how before Alexander was conceived, Olympus had a vision of a lightning bolt entering her room and then fire spreading across the room and then disappearing. This is about the laziest way that you can make a reference to Zeus and say that Zeus had something to do with your pregnancy. So I'm not sure where Plutarch got this story from, if Olympus told it or he just made it up, but either way, they're basically just saying, hey, Zeus had something to do with the child that is going to be born. Philip apparently also had a dream involving a lion, and these stories are most likely added for a dramatic effect, but hey, whatever Plutarch wants. It, he wrote it, so okay. Then Plutarch adds that Philip found Olympus sleeping with a snake in her bed one night, which at a minimum made him no longer fond of her conversation. <laughs> Okay, Plutarch then goes on to explain that Olympus was from a tribe that liked to worship Dionysus or Bacchus, depending on if you're doing the Greek or Roman, 
And basically, they like to do weird things with snakes to show their allegiance to this god. Plutarch says a lot of things about Olympus, and this seems to be the main source that people get their information about her from. And before I go further into this, I think that it's important to give some context to how Plutarch felt about women. So that being said, I actually found a quote from Peter Wolcott, who works at the University of Wales, and this was published in the Norwegian Journal of Greek and Latin Studies. So let me prepare for my dramatic reading voice. Here we go. The evidence offered shows that Plutarch had a low opinion of women, regarding them as being deceitful, savage, sexually insatiable, frivolous, and gossips. Women are thought to be weak and need to be protected from themselves as much as from others by men, but at the same time, dangerous. Basically, Olympus seemed to be a strong, attractive woman in a time when men viewed women as mostly property, which basically is the way it was. Regardless, the relationship between Olympus and Philip were strained, possibly even before Alexander was born. Alexander III was born in Pella, Macedonia in 356 BC to King Philip II and Queen Olympus, although legend has it that his father was none other than Zeus, the ruler of the Greek gods. Olympus told Alexander that his father was Zeus, not Philip, and that he was destined for glory. She also was not getting along with Philip again at this point, so she might have just been saying this as a slap in the face to Philip, like, you're actually not my son's father, Zeus the Almighty God is. Which, okay, I that's one way. <laughs> that's one way to annoy your spouse, so there you go. Olympus also had a daughter named Cleopatra, not that Cleopatra, in either 355 or 354 BC as well. So Alexander had a pretty great, you know, pretty great uh, royal childhood. At the age of 12, his first larger-than-life story happened. So basically, a trader came with a large black horse to show Philip, but nobody was able to tame this horse. Alexander asked Philip if he could buy the horse for him if he was able to ride it, and Philip, thinking that there's no way this is going to be able to work out, agreed. Alexander had paid attention to the horse and realized that he was scared of his own shadow. So what Alexander did is he turned the horse to the sun so that the horse would no longer see his shadow and no longer be afraid. The horse became his battle companion for the rest of Alexander's life. As I mentioned, there is a whole generation of young men who grew up and were educated together. Alexander and these young men became known as the Companions. When Alexander was 13, Philip called on the great philosopher Aristotle to tutor his son. Aristotle sparked and fostered Alexander's interest in literature, science, medicine, and philosophy. Plutarch actually reported that Alexander complained to his tutor about him writing a book saying, What advantage shall I have over other men if these theories in which I have been trained are to be made common property? We get a glimpse into the personality and motivations of Alexander through this quote. He wasn't learning for the joy of it. He was learning because he wanted to use it over others. Alexander read Homer's The Iliad with heroes like Achilles and Hector. Remember, he would have felt a deep personal connection to Achilles, 
because on his mother's side, they claim to be descendants of this hero. In case you know, in case your knowledge of Greek epics is escaping you, the Iliad covers the final weeks of the Battle of Troy. Achilles was descended from Poseidon through his mother. Did Alexander think that since his mom had told him he was descended from Zeus, that his own deeds could outdo those of the epic heroes? Alexander was five feet tall, and while I know this sounds very short to us, this was actually the height of the average Greek male at the time. And this is because when humanity switched from hunter-gathering to agriculture, our diets were not as great, and this meant that everybody across the board got a lot shorter, which is actually kind of funny when you think about it, and we're just now getting back to the male heights that we had when we were hunter-gathering. So. Fun fact, fun anthropology fact of the day. But he was clean shaven, which was not typical of the Greek style at the time, but would become the fashion until the Roman Emperor Hadrian, who was very much also obsessed with the Greeks. Plutarch said that his hair was the color of a lion's mane, and this seems to be referring to a dark reddish blonde, and he was described as having light eyes, which scholars also believe to have meant blue. Now, when you look up Alexander, one of the first images you're going to get is a mosaic. And in the mosaic, he has like, it almost looks like dark brown hair, maybe brown eyes. But please take this image with a grain of salt, as it was made about 150 years after Alexander's death. Now, you may be thinking, what the heck? I thought that Alexander was Greek, and I thought Greek people were pretty dark. You know, you might be thinking of the modern Mediterranean features that we think of now. Well, if you listened to my last episode at all, I hope the main thing that you got is that people have migrated all over the place. And just because people in a current region today look a certain way or have a certain phenotype, which again, doesn't have anything to do with genetics. Go back to my intro to anthropology episode. But basically... Just because people look a certain way in a region today does not mean that that's the way the people looked 2,000 years ago. There's been a lot of history that's happened in between now and then. So just keep this in mind. Now that we've learned a little bit more about the protagonist of our story, let's jump back to what was happening with Dad. Though Philip had established an uneasy alliance with Athens for now, Philip's ultimate goal was expanding into North expanding northeast into Asia Minor, and this made the other Greek city-states very uneasy. Now you're probably wondering, what's in Asia Minor that Philip's interested in? And two, why would the southern Greek city-states care? Well, one, Philip didn't want to just control Greece. Philip wanted to fight against the major power of the day, Persia, which controlled Asia Minor. Philip was all about glory and Controlling Greece was just a stepping stone on his way to achieving his ultimate goal. Now, if you're trying to visualize this story at all, you're probably thinking, if the classical Greek city-states were south of Macedonia, why would they care about Philip expanding northeast into where Asia Minor was? And the answer was grain. The southern city-states relied heavily on the grain that they gained from the shipping of the port cities that were located along the top of the Aegean Sea. So if you're thinking about the Greek city-states, you have the classical ones, they're south, they're south on the Greek mainland, and then you have Macedonia above them. 
And then if you keep going around the top of the Aegean Sea, there's all of these city-states, Greek city-states, located in this area, which is known as Asia Minor. And these Greek city-states are what are supplying grain to the main classical city-states that we think of. So if Philip had control of this region, he would basically have control of the food supply of the entire mainland. And this was very, very scary to people. When Philip seized grain ships in 340 BC, Athens' worst fears were realized, and they declared war on Macedonia. Shortly after this, Corinth and Thebes joined, joined in an alliance with Athens against Macedonia as well. Philip left Alexander in charge of Macedonia as he began to prepare for war when Alexander was just 16. After two years, the Macedonians and the Greek city-states met in one of the biggest battles in Greek history. In 338 BC, 35,000 men from Athens, Corinth, Abia, Megara, and Thebes, and we can just refer to them as the allies from now on, met Philip's 30,000 Macedonian troops outside of a town called Chaeronea. Philip had 1,800 cavalry, which was led by the now 18-year-old Alexander. The battle began as a classic hoplite battle, the two lines pushing up against each other. Philip's hypaspips, which this is the special forces part of his army as it were, were on the line with the hoplites and they began to withdraw. The Athenian forces on the left side of the allied line chased after the withdrawing group thinking that victory was theirs. Their pursuit created a massive hole in the Allied line, and Alexander rushed into this hole with his cavalry. Alexander was able to surround the Thebian forces, including the Sacred Band. And quick note on this, because I thought this was super interesting. The Sacred Band was an elite fighting force made up of 150 pairs of male lovers. They had been a deciding factor in the defeat of Sparta in the 4th century BC. Of the 300 men in their unit, 254 were killed in this battle. There is actually a statue of a lion that was placed on the site of this battle to honor them, which you can still see to this day. So basically, Alexander was a big part in the reason why Philip was able to defeat the allied forces of the Greek city-states. In 337 BC, after the Battle of Chaeronea, a Greek delegation came to sue for peace. Philip was given the title of hegemon, or dominant leader, of all of the Greek armies. This title gave Philip the authority to attack Persia in the name of all of Greece. Under the idea that he would be freeing the Greek city-states that were located in Asia Minor. Those were the city-states that controlled all the grain, if you remember that from a few moments ago. So in 337 BC, Philip took, also took a new wife. Shortly after, he failed to support Alexander's claim to the Macedonian throne when his legitimacy was challenged in front of him. This little episode happened according to Plutarch, and needless to say, this whole situation caused a lot of tension between Olympia, Philip, and Alexander, which... Again, not surprised, this sounds like the most dysfunctional family of all time. Very Game of Thrones-y, I would say. So, 
Olympian Alexander left Philip's court to go to the court of Olympia's home tribe, which was now ruled by her brother. In 336 BC, while Philip was in Pella celebrating the marriage of his daughter with Olympus, Cleopatra, he was assassinated by one of his bodyguards. So, backstory on this. Remember how Olympus's marriage to Philip had been arranged by her uncle, the new king of her tribe? Well, Philip wanted to cement that relationship further. Olympus's brother was now on the throne, so Philip offered his daughter's hand in marriage. So first of all, involuntary yuck, because if you followed that well, that means that Philip was offering the king of Olympus's home tribe his niece as a wife. And everyone was like, yeah, it sounds good. And again, this is nothing compared to things that come after this in history. We're looking at you, the Ptolemies, so what can you do? It's just the way things were done. Now, the bodyguard in question who assassinated Philip was killed before he could be questioned, which, hmm, that, <laughs> that makes it look even worse. So naturally, suspicion fell on Olympia. And you might be wondering, why would she want to kill her husband at her daughter's marriage? Well, the marriage that was taking place meant that Philip did not need Olympia anymore. Philip had recently married someone else, again, we mentioned that, and he had let the question of whether Ale Alexander was his rightful successor hang in the air for too long, and it was making everybody uncomfortable. He had arranged this marriage to basically make Olympia obsolete, and she definitely did not want that, and so, I mean, Maybe. It's impossible to say from here, but Olympia did love her son and wanted her son on the throne. Now, ironically, if it was the case that someone from one of the Greek city-states had arranged for this to happen, then these poor people had no idea what they were in for. After Philip's death at just 20 years old, Alexander claimed the throne and killed his rivals before they could challenge his sovereignty. Philip's life and military campaign had led to the end of the classical period of Greece, which lasted from 490 BC to 350 BC. Alexander immediately began to prepare for what his father had dreamed of, to attack the Persian Empire. However, because of the change in leadership, the Greek city-states his father had just defeated would definitely be trying to see if they could get away from Macedonian influence. Which again, makes me think that one of them may have killed Philip, not actually Olympia, but we'll never know. Some things are just lost to history. So immediately, opposition started in Thrace. Alexander took troops there to squash out any rebellion. Then he heard that tribes in Illyria were amassing on the, at the Macedonian border. He turned around and went to deal with them. He then got news that Thebes was revolting. Now I know I'm making this sound like this happened pretty quick, but keep in mind this is during a time where Alexander is literally just riding a horse across the Greek countryside. And I know that that also kind of sounds pretty nice, but as someone who has spent a lot of time walking around the Greek countryside, it is extremely rocky, rugged terrain. There are also a lot of prickly plants. And again, I know this from personal experience. My point is that I know that I'm making it sound like this all was happening pretty quick, but please remember, 
<laughs> it was taking some time, so it's also probably exhausting as well. Now, in Thebes, a rumor had started that Alexander had been killed when fighting the Illyrians. The people of Thebes thought, sweet, no Macedonian leader, no Macedonian boss of me, excellent. Also, if you are wondering who started that rumor, it was our old friend Demosthenes. He also gave, he was the one who, if you remember, was giving all those speeches criticizing Philip. Well, apparently his dislike of Macedonians was across the board as he also did not like Alexander. And Demosthenes had found an eyewitness that swore that Alexander was dead. So at this point, I'm assuming that Alexander is pretty tired. He's probably very sore from riding his horse all around. There's probably lots of cuts on his legs from all of those prickly plants. And he's probably very angry. It's already been about a year since his father had died. And so when he gets the news that Thebes has tried to revolt, he marches his troops right down there and surrounds the city. What followed next was described in one of my sources as swift and brutal. Alexander had his men kill thousands of Thebians and then had the rest sold into slavery. Basically, Thebes ceased to exist as it had previously been known. Alexander had his men burn down the walls of the city and some of the buildings he didn't care for. However, he made sure none of the temples were touched. After all, there is no reason to anger the gods. He also admired a poet named Pindar. Alexander made sure that the homes of his descendants were not destroyed, which I have written in parentheses, thanks, question mark. It's, it's just quite the juxtaposition. What I get from this is that while Alexander was well-educated and did have an appreciation for culture, he was also ruthless and calculating. I actually think this is a pretty good embodiment of this time in history. While many of the great thinkers and philosophers that we still admire today lived close to Alexander's time, it was also a time of great violence. Human life was cheap. After Thebes, Alexander moved further south towards Athens. Athens, who at this point had heard what Alexander had done to Thebes and were probably shaking in their boots or sandals, this is Greece after all, they quickly rushed to summon emissaries congratulating Alexander on his recent victory in Athens. Which, can you imagine the way this went? Congratulations, please don't kill our men and sell our women and children into slavery too. Great, we're so happy you're in charge of us. Alexander accepted their congratulations, but he asked for Demosthenes to please be handed over to him. Now, somehow Demosthenes managed to talk his way out of this in an exchange that I would love, love to have a recording of. If I ever get a time machine, this is definitely a moment that I would like to be at, just so I can hear the way that this went down. Now, Demosthenes actually is going to end up outliving Alexander, and after Alexander died, he tried to get Athens to rebel from Macedonia, and this time it resulted in Demosthenes being forced to commit suicide. So let this be a lesson. Sometimes it's better to just let things go. Now by 334 BC, two years after his father's assassination, Alexander was acknowledged as the hegemon of the Greek city-states and the general of the Greek armies. His passion was for glory only. 
and in that he was insatiable. Arian, the Campaigns of Alexander. Now that Alexander had control of Greece, it is time to fulfill his father's dream of fighting Persia. Other than the typical answers of glory and fame, why would Philip and ultimately Alexander want to do this? Well, the first was money. Controlling even some of the regions that Persia currently controlled would mean a lot of power and wealth. And this was because of the trade routes going through these regions. There was also the story of liberating the Greek city-states that were currently under Persian control. Before Alexander left, he put a general in charge as regent. This general had been serving since the time of his father, and Alexander trusted him greatly. According to Diodorus, Alexander left behind 12,000 infantry and 1,500 cavalry behind in Macedonia to make sure that there was no funny business. Also, now that the Greek mainland had seen exactly what Alexander was willing to do to a city that rebelled, no one was willing to push it. I think Alexander knew exactly what he was doing when he sacked Thebes. Persia was now ruled by Darius III. Darius had gained control of Persia in 335 BC. This is just a year previous to where we left off with Alexander in Athens, and he had actually taken the throne after the king before him had been assassinated. Darius was the grandson of a Persian king who had been given the Sterapi of Armenia, and I'm not sure if this has anything to do with the modern-day public of Armenia, but they did give us the Kardashian, so we can thank them for that. Darius was not given any training in ruling and had only gained his terapi after he performed well during uh, battle, specifically in single-hand combat. It's not even like he was directing troops. It was like, oh yeah, this guy fights really good. Let's, let's try him. So basically, there was this eunuch who was advisor to the last few Persian kings, and this eunuch's name was Bagos. Bagos had actually killed two kings in a row through poison, and had installed Darius on the throne because he thought that he would be very easy to control. Now this was actually not the case, and so when Bagos was like, mm, I'm gonna try for king number four, Darius actually found out about it and had Bagos drink the cup of poison that had been intended for him, resulting in his death. I hope for Bagios's sake that he had picked a poison that was gentle and maybe just you fell asleep slowly and soothing and then you just never woke up. But I have a feeling that's not how poison works. I'm not too familiar with it, to be honest with you. But moving on, I thought, I thought that this eunuch was so fascinating and there just isn't a ton of information on him, at least not a ton of information in English. And he is also not to be confused because if you want to look him up, um, there is another eunuch that was at the court at the same time referred to as Bagios the Younger, who had the same name, but is not related to the Bagios that killed two kings and almost got a third. Now, we talked about Persia before, but Persia was big, and they had a lot of resources. While Darius had personal troops, the majority of the Persian army were men sent to fight from local leaders who at this point were not well controlled. The troops they provided did not speak the same language and frankly did not have a lot to fight for. I was thinking about this concept and how in a time before modern technology, if it was beyond your immediate family or your city, 
you probably didn't care a lot about what was happening at the level of the kingdom that you live in. The Greek city-states had this problem as well. Empires rose when they were able to consolidate power and create a collective idea. And with that, we are going to leave off this episode right here. When we pick up next episode, we will be starting with the Battle of the Granicus River, which happened in 334 BC. Thank you guys so much for listening. Goodbye!